0: Do you struggle to keep your organization top of mind with your constituents? My friends over at Relevant Marketing Solutions create custom branded merchandise and tangible marketing collateral to help you build brand champions and multiply your impact. To learn more about how they can help you with all your branding needs, visit relevantadvantage.com or contact them at info at Be sure to mention the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast so you can get 10% off your first order. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, your home for all things fundraising and nonprofit leadership. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a favor to ask. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate the show and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact in the world. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson. I'm I'm here with two of I think the most brilliant fundraisers in the industry so uh I'm I'm excited to be here today with Nathan Chappelle who's senior vice president at donor search he is a, a incredibly sought after industry speaker and one of the the foremost experts in our uh in our industry on the intersection of artificial intelligence and philanthropy and and alongside him uh, is Brian Crimmins, who's chief executive officer at changing our world he's uh the the global managing partner and I I think the founder of 100 um also, a uh, highly sought after dynamic speaker um, in in the uh, arena of philanthropy and leadership, um, and also happens to be a, a good longtime friend of mine. We've been in the trenches together before, building some complex programs. Um, so I'm excited to talk to these two guys today. Gentlemen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks for having us. As you said, good to be good to be chatting again with you. Yeah, great to, great to be on. Thank you so much, Andrew.
0: Yeah, excited to talk to you guys today. So, we're going to we're going to dig in and talk about the uh the book that you guys have coming out just like in a week or so, uh The Generosity Crisis. Um so, uh it's, at, it's supposed to be out November 15th. Has that date changed at all?
1: No, it's uh nat- we we actually planned it for National Philanthropy Day. Imagine that. So, uh book on generosity. So, yeah, hard fast on November 15th. Really awesome. looking forward to it.
0: So go out and order that book right now. Uh, before we get into that, guys, uh, I'd love to just give you two, both a, a, a quick second to uh, share a little bit that I didn't share in your bios and, and anything you'd like to before we jump into the questions.
2: Nathan, go for it.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, thank you. I, you know, I think about that, the niche of what you described, you know, the intersection of of AI and philanthropy, you know, for me, it's like, take the the smallest niche you can find and then you can own it. But um, it has been an exciting, you know, last five years of using machine learning and and really understanding the motivations of generosity and um, the, not necessarily that the book is about that, but it does talk about AI and personalization and technology. Outside of that, I spent twenty years fundraising, so I started out, you know, back in the day. Um, I just wrote a LinkedIn article about this, but you know, really in 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 really trust based relational philanthropy. So that was my my background, and kind of moved my way up, and then uh, started you know, really looked at opportunities to scale my impact in in the world and figured that the best way for me to do that would be through technology. Um, and with donor search, we get to work with amazing clients all over, which is it's just so exciting.
2: Yeah, Andrew, thanks for the time. I, I would just add that I said to Nathan the other day that I hate, I, I hate even saying this because it obviously means we're in a difficult spot, but our book is coming out at a very timely time. Um, I think I re- heard this morning the Fed's increasing the rates again, Inflation's at its forty-year highest. You know, a lot of pressure that I didn't. You know, that quite frankly wasn't needed. We had our own pressures within the giving, not-for-profit sector, and so you know, I kind of hate to say it, but it is coming out in a very timely fashion. And I know uh Nathan and I have also talked about this. I, I some of our friends, crossed a proverbial street when we came out with the name of the book because it sounds like it's doomsday. And I just <laughs> want to put out right there, right out front, that this is actually a book of hope, and I'm really excited by what us in the sector, our clients, and everybody involved in the backbone of what our country is about can really get galvanized. And, and as I said, just coming off a talk that in five years, somebody's at the podium I was just at giving a totally different presentation. So I'm excited to, to have this conversation as part of that, Andrew, the
0: part of that journey. So thanks. Awesome. Thank you both. So all right, let's, let's jump right in. Um, let's talk about the origin story of this book. Like, wh- where were you guys when you looked at each other and said, we have to write this? And, and what was really the, the hope and the goal you had for this project? I'll give my version.
1: Actually, Brian and I were together. We were uh, actually in New York, and uh, and Brian had hosted this gathering to talk about AI and the future of generosity. I think, and uh, and I was up on this little podium, and we were talking, and I and I was talking about like this idea that it's been getting for nonprofits, you know, getting harder, right? I mean, I, I spent twenty years in non, in nonprofits, and either. You know, exceeded goals or met goals every year, but from a shrinking pool of donors. And and the thing is, no one was talking about this stuff. And you know, we were starting to learn about you know some of the insights that Giving USA was showing about the decline in households that give. And and I just said like, someone needs to write a book called the Generosity Crisis. And I literally was looking at the guy in the front row, and I'm like, maybe it's you. Like, hopefully it's you. I I can't speak for Brian. Brian can answer. I never intended to write this book. And again, it's not you don't write a book called the generosity crisis to make friends. You, you do it to, you know, to inspire conversation, uh, hopefully, but, um, yeah. And that was, I don't know how many years ago, Brian, that was several years ago. And we talked and talked about not even writing a book, but just what was going on in the state of philanthropy. And then I think finally decided to get serious about it uh, around two years ago.
2: Yeah. And my, my versions, uh, that's accurate, but mine's a slightly (laughs) different. I, I, uh, Andrew, I got the opportunity to, to be uh, work with uh, to work with Nathan, um, and uh, you know he was a client for going back many years now. And you know when you meet somebody and you're just like, my gosh, this guy is really smart and definitely has a really interesting handle on our sector. And I think from that. Um, you know he and I I hope he would feel the same way you know I always just felt I learned so much from interacting with him he saw the space from a different angle in a different way than I did and I kind of thought I saw it from a different way and I think that for me is like the icing on the cake when he when he was out talking and saying someone's got to start this conversation we've got to talk about what's happening to our sector and uh, you know we started putting our heads together and I, you know just even the process of writing the book the, the f- 13 months or so that we worked on this every week and you know I, there wasn't a meeting we had, right? I learned something from Nathan about what he was, you know, just the way he is or the research that he had done. And I feel, feel like I talk internally at Change Your World a lot of all of us needing to be students of the industry. And I, I sort of feel like I had a master's class over the last year and a half writing this book with Nathan. So, um, and, I, and, as, and I hope it's starting the conversation for, for the better.
1: I, I mean, I, I think you're bringing us all the way back, Brian. It was love, love at first sight, um, first time I met you. <laughs> and and very interesting, uh, and I think this comes out in the book, I've heard from people that have had pre-read, is that Brian and I look at things very differently. I I tend to be a bit more tactical and, you know, why and how something will get resolved. And Brian is definitely more macro and, and looks at, like, big picture very easily, and he's just so creative. So I think that dichotomy um, comes throughout the book of, like, you know the the big picture but then also down into kind of some more finite terms which is it's a nice balance and again i such a fun opportunity to do this with someone that you admire and respect and and learn from so it's been a, a great experience
0: awesome so um brian you you said this isn't a doom and gloom book this is this is a book about hope um having said that i uh when i when i got the uh the advanced copy and i was looking through it the first thing that hit me was uh, the, the 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 statement the and, and I forget exactly how it was worded, but essentially the 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 hypothesis that if things don't change, philanthropy as we know it could go away within the next fifty years. Talk about that,
2: Ethan. You want? You, you no, wanna
0: start? Go.
2: Um, you're on a roll. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, so that's obviously, and thanks for bringing up that you know it is. There's no hiding the The facts of the matter. I mean, you can argue We can have different opinions on them, and we can have different perspectives on them. There's no doubt about that. But the stat you're talking about, Andrew, is a very real one. That is, if we continue on the trend we're on, that that within 49 50 years, you know, philanthropy as we know it will, will seek cease to exist. Now, do I think that'll happen? No, but I think that's a wake up call, you know, for all of us that where things are just not going as we um had hoped. I guess I would say. Now, this without getting too far ahead of ourselves here. I mean that it, that is traditional philanthropy, right? You know, giving to an or giving to a nonprofit. And if you look at anything and you look at stats on millennials, they will they will consider themselves extremely generous. You know, three out of four of them say mm-hmm. that they are generous. And uh, it, it's the fundamental question of what do they mean by generosity, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's investing, it's it's helping a peer, it's doing all, all sorts of really great things. But practically speaking, not things that would balance a not-for-profits budget, an operating budget. So right. I think we've got dichotomy going on where I would argue, I don't think we're less generous as a society. Now, some of our biggest challenges are still there, but the business that Andrew, you and I were in the trenches on, as you said in the beginning, something's happening there that needs to be talked about because it's affecting all of our clients. Yeah, and we, when, oh, oh.
0: Just one quick quote, just to clarify for yeah. the audience, when you all are, are projecting out that 50-year timeline, really what you're, I think what you're saying there is if Fun if giving participation rates continue to decline at the rates that they have been, that's how you're getting to that 50 year projection, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, essentially there's been a 16 percent decline in the percentage of households that give to nonprofit organizations, 51 c 3s since the year 2000. You know, and that trajectory is not hard to do the math. You know, it's not a good trajectory. And it's the same in Canada, you know, just starts at a lower baseline. I mean, it's uh, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, but you know, for us, it really is. I mean, there's a little shock and awe in that. It's like, wow, you know, first and foremost, you know, we need to write the book and we struggled with this a lot. We actually challenged and we challenged in the book of whether or not there is a generosity crisis. Maybe people are just giving different ways and maybe they're buying more responsibly and that is generosity, you know, um, but to Brian's point, that doesn't help the average nonprofit that's employing a lot of people and that are, yeah. you know, they're trying to, to you know, stay open and fulfill their mission. Um, it deserved conversation. It deserved uh, an opportunity to hit time out and say, you know, the average person out there is, I mean, they're not thinking about a decline in generosity. They're not even thinking about generosity. Something that mm-hmm. we just, it's so big and broad that most people just take for granted. That's always there and always will be there. But if I think about, you know, my, my son's getting married in, in January and in a few years, he'll have kids. And I'm like, I think about our world today, and it's a great world. We, uh, we, we live among many generous um, people that care about others, but do we want to live in a world that is less And do our kids and our grandkids want to be, you know, growing up in a world that is less generous than the one it is today? I mean, we live in a very divisive world as well. Mm-hmm. So So there is a little bit of this opportunity to hit the pause button to say, what's going on? Let's take stock. Um, because I'm responsible, you're responsible. It really comes down to each individual person, you know, and their view of of generosity and philanthropy. And and if no one's talking about it, we kind of know how it ends.
0: Yeah. So a couple, couple
1: follow-ups on this. I mean, you know,
0: when I when I read that and Brian, when I hear your response to it, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is some of the, you know, the younger generation, the folks that I engage with who will say things to me like, Oh, yeah I, I I did my part I liked their post on Facebook right and, and I right. I think there's there's this sort of like retraining of the American public and, and apparently the Canadian public um where where part of this you know sort of participation economy if you will is if I liked it if I retweeted it if I you know right. posted a quick video about how much how cool it was I've done my part whereas prior generations um and, and maybe even some who aren't focused on that in, in, in current generations really understood that, well, yeah, that's, that's valuable. Like it's, it's valuable to tell your neighbor how great something is, but if that's all you're doing, it's really right. not enough. Right. Um, yeah. How, how do you guys see that? And, and, you know, is, is that a major contributor is it a, is it a minor player? Like wh- where do you see that in the mix?
1: Yeah.
2: Go ahead, Brian. Uh, Andrew, I, and I think you nailed it. I, I think that the examples you gave, I think are a real concern. I'll speak for myself because you know, that is part of the, I did my part. I'm generous. I liked and shared it. They're redefining, which is in and of itself is fine. You know, the redefining of each generation in terms of how they support one another. Um, but as I said earlier, it doesn't help, you know, the, the nonprofits with the with the, their operating budgets and the money that they need to raise. And I think there's it's possible to do both, <laughs> you know, it's possible to, to like and share a video and also be financially supportive and not to dive down a hole because, you know, when you couple what you said, with the disassociation of faith-based organized people, with faith-based yes. organizations, mm-hmm. Nathan and I wanted to write a chapter that we just never got to about what what is going to take that place of training, yeah. educating, and the traditional habits that I'll speak for myself. I grew up in a faith-based environment, and we were you know we were taught to give back and that others needed help. And yes, it was nice to volunteer, but also money as well. And that's a you know. Nathan and I talked about like the moment the Peace Corps was founded and why that was founded. Like, is there a time for a national movement to re-inspire our whole country? And I, I kind of think there is, but I don't know the answer to it.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump back in, in just one step, too, because when we're talking about, you know, the changing definition of philanthropy, it's it's a it's concerning, too, because some of that is coming from our industry, which is saying, well, it's never been about money. It's just about participation, or it's just about you know, people, you know, being kind. Making friends, I mean, yeah. It's two two different goalposts, like they're they're right. literally two different things where um and there's a lot of distraction around like, well, we're living in the most, you know, the the golden age of philanthropy right now, and giving's at an all-time high, and people have an abundance of generosity, but at the same time, it's it doesn't the 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 one thing we can measure is a percentage of people that give to to nonprofits and and, uh, and it is interesting because when we look at that decline um, actually there's a study that came out a few days ago generosity the generosity Commission which is partly funded through um, private and also the uh, giving USA um, just came out with a new study statistic that they came out with that 55 percent of people that um, give to nonprofits said they learned that from their parents mm-hmm. so you know you learn it from your parents you learn it from your your church or synagogue or, or whatever. And those things are going away. I mean, we, we do spend quite a bit of time in the book, you know, kind of unpacking both external and internal reasons. It's not just religion and it's not just the government and it's not just other things. But, um, you know, there, there are and there's a lot of reasons why nonprofits are at fault, you know, for essentially treating people like ATMs versus, yeah. you know, our partners.
0: Yeah. I, I, I mean, everything you just said resonates, you know, the, the three things that I've been thinking a lot about lately are that, you know, that, that faith participation really, right? Because it's not just, is someone, you know, does someone ascribe to a faith or not, right? Well, the data that I've seen for, for 20 years now, uh, regardless of what faith someone ascribes to is, how often are they in their house of worship, right? How, how often do they participate in the community? And those, those who do at a high level tend to volunteer at a higher level and tend to give uh, a higher percentage of, of whatever available, you know, Exactly. They have to, to yeah. charitable causes. So that one is a big concern. The other one for me that's a big concern that you guys uh, allude to in the book as well is, um, you know, the, this changing, uh, re- redefining of, of the narrative around what philanthropy is, and, and you know, al- almost to the point of saying philanthropy is racist, right? <laughs> of saying it's, it's only ever been the purview of wealthy white men.
2: Right, right.
0: And, and you know, couldn't be further from the truth if you think right. about philanthropy outside of some of the biggest, you know, multi-billion dollar campaigns that that someone might think about, you know, right. when they think about it. And understand that philanthropy really is, it, it's that, but it's also, you know, the neighbor going next door to, to the, the home where someone's just lost their job and saying, I brought you this casserole and my kid's yeah. going to mow your lawn for the next two weeks to help you so that you can go look for a new job, right?
1: 100%. Um and,
0: and and then the other one you know you, you talk about nonprofits doing a a, a disservice to to their donor by treating them ATMs. I also wonder like as a as a industry, you know, have have those of us who've been on the consulting side, you know, every once in a while I'll refer to what we do as kind of like mercenary work for for nonprofits. Yeah. Right? um, what contribution and Nathan we were talking about this a little bit off camera early on, but you know um the the idea that if if everything we're doing is just to the end of how to produce more and how to do more and, and you know how to, how to sell a nonprofit, more mail, more more email, whatever it is, how do those three things kind of all intersect and and what level of uh, culpability does that all have?
1: Yeah, I, I'll answer kind of briefly and, and Brian jump in. But, you know, I, I have to stop and and think that so much of what we talk about, we're, we're just talking to ourselves. We're talking to the 49 percent of Americans that, that are generous. Yeah. and We're debating why they're, you know, less of them or they're why they're generous and how they give. And but when you spend time out in the world and you talk to one of the 51 percent of people that just not even they don't even think about it. Like, don't even think about it. They don't give. And to be honest, they don't give because the same things that bother us and we're more forgiving. So I've been collecting direct mail appeals since January 1. It's driving my wife crazy. I'm at, like, I think about 130 um, to date. One, one I have 14 appeals from one organization that I gave to, like, seven years ago. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm doing this. And at the end of the year, of course, I'm going to call them all and say, hey, please take me off. Out of all of those, I've only given to seven. If I'm my neighbor who's never given, how annoying is that? How yeah. inefficient do you think the nonprofit and tone deaf the nonprofit world is for like just sending, you know, these these mailers or or hundreds of emails or whatever about, you know, trying to convince me to give versus what it was when I started in fundraising 20 years ago, which was literally going to Starbucks and getting to meet someone you know, to talk about, you know, our dreams and talk about what their dreams are and talk about how maybe we could work together. I mean, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever convinced someone that they're generous through an email or, or a piece of mail, but hand in hand, you could do that, you know? So I think this is where in the pandemic is, I think there's some great examples of how parishes that, you know, were closed down, had to be the hands and feet they had to walk out and just start talking and meeting with people and gosh that's so powerful and it's you know what's old is new again like that's how philanthropy was for like hundreds of years right and you know i think for 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 a while we traded you know this need for more more is better you know um we traded the relationships we focused instead of taking the energy we were focused on those relationships we we tend to spread it out into things that were just appeared to be scalable and we see the result of it now
0: yeah i mean i i, I agree with you scalability and really that like the you know we we made it really easy to not have to ever have hard conversations right? totally and not that totally. not that you know uh <laughs> engagement with a donor around their, their philanthropy has to be a hard conversation, but it, you know, for the fundraiser, it creates the, you know, the angst of, well, are they going to like me? Are they going to say no? Is that, how does that reflect right. on my employment? I mean, all those things. Right. And so we, we, we've created this scenario and, and I mean, I'm the first one I've been in direct response fundraising for 25 years. So I'm the first one to say, I know it works like there's validity to it. Right. But sure. I, I, I do agree. I think it, we, we've reached a point where um, we are at a, a significant level of overuse
1: and yeah. and we've dehumanized the experience for our donors. I'll only add to that because I want Brian to chime in, but I'll only add to that that in the direct response world, which I'm also a big believer, we have to build the pipeline. We have to have better and we have to have more. We have to be able to fill that and know that there's going to be attrition. But there is technology, and not to jump into AI, but there are technology that exists now that allows for personalization at scale mm-hmm. that's never existed before. Right. So you know now that industry is able to catch up, in if fully embraced, can actually really create more n of one, you know, individualized, you know, personalization. I mean,
2: yeah.
1: I predict in five years, micro segmentation down to n of one will be very possible. Like mm-hmm. everyone will do it. We'll expect yeah. it. You know. So um, it's ex- that part's exciting. Brian, I'm sorry.
2: No, no. I'm, I hope I know enough to stay out of the way when a really good conversation is going on. I, I would say, you know, summing it up a bit, it's, it's, you know, the quality over the quantity approach. And and Andrew, I agree. I mean, the direct response business, it's not like this is uh, a mark on that. I, you know, I think it's, there's right. it, to Nathan's point. I mean, I think seeing what technology can do to enhance it, to, 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 to maybe cut off some of the, you know, some of the, the fat that may not be working on the edges, so to speak, you know, I've had I talked to a couple of our clients who are using AI in their schools and they're using it in their enrollment strategies. Mm -hmm. And this is where I see what you two are just talking about really playing out that, you know, I just had a conversation with the president of a high school late last week. And he said that their enrollment strategies are so much more effective. Now they're spending Mm -hmm. actually less better returns that they're not the spraying and praying attitude. They actually know not, down to N of one, although Nathan, I agree with you that that's coming. They, they were like, you know, they'll use the word persona. They have a really good handle on mm-hmm. what type of kid from what area, from what background, you know, from will makes, makes a really strong candidate and really succeeds at their school. And they're seeing their results, you know, four and five X from an enrollment standpoint And that. And I, cause he and I were talking about, it, I'm like, you know, that's possible on the fu- fundraising side of your house too. And he was like, really? So like, and we were just having that fascinating conversation and uh, but, uh, but I've, I've been able to see, some practical uses of what you two are discussing and it, and it really works.
0: Yeah. I, and and I've seen it recently, even on the, on the direct response, direct response fundraising side as well. And it does work, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think, you know, from what I've seen, the conversation we've had, it feels like you guys have, have successfully established the crisis, right? That the, the we, we get that the proverbial platform is burning and we have to do something different. Given that, like what, you know what is the guidance that you provide to the nonprofit leader who who's like, hey, I've been a, a social worker or an academic my entire life. I'm not an expert at this kind of stuff. How do I make sure that we do it better for our supporters so that we can make a bigger mission impact? Like, where do you go from uh, yes, there's a crisis to how do we help you solve it?
2: On a very, very, very practical level, Andrew, there's the giving crisis cover of the Chronicle Philanthropy in July. There's some really great case studies um, in there, particularly one about the a, a major gift officer for the Houston Food Bank. Uh, I think her name was Sean, um, who did some great, great work at taking what seemed, if I recall, kind of a stagnant major gift portfolio and really supercharging it. And I think that what she did, i we 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 make a case in the book is establish that radical connection with the with the donors to 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 really go to that depth, that quad quality conversation that you all were just um, you know having really interesting, you know, as I, you both know as I mean, just gave us a talk here at this conference, and someone said re- when referring to faith-based organizations and the tradition and the tradition of giving that you both were talking about earlier, This person said, which I thought was a great point, Nathan, and I think you and I have talked about this a few times. They said, if you think about it, though, the churches and the synagogues, they had radical connection. They have radical Mm -hmm. connection. It's built into, you know, he's like, you think about from every week you're seeing the same people. And so, you know, whether it's the modern day, if you will, version of the Houston Food Bank in the Chronicle Philanthropy example, or if it's like those nonprofits that for a long time had it really working for them. Uh, we Nathan and I would argue they at their surf at their core they had a radical connection with their supporters and, mm. and I think that's now it's not the same for every organization how that manifests itself is really important that you try to figure it out that's the secret sauce for each organization but the the old days of saying like well we could just keep telling them we're really good and they should support us that's what's changing you know and I think that just being aware of that is half the battle.
1: I, I do think there's a lot to say about you know the awareness side. I mean I I think the the goalpost for nonprofits has been wrong for a while. I think for most nonprofits, they've been thinking that, you know, if someone's generous, then I'll establish connection with them. Hmm. And it needs to be flipped upside down, you know? Yeah. And so really in the book, we, we talk about this idea that generosity is a manifestation of connection, not the other way around. And, and so on the practical level, nonprofits focus on connection and really understand what connection is. A connection is not affiliation it's not this idea that i know you or you know me but it's that we know each other and so um the book really kind of lays out this framework for what brian just said was this idea of radical connection i because i think it's probably one of the most overused and misunderstood things in society today your connection is one it's a it's extremely limited supply it's probably the most powerful thing that you as a human have in the sense that I can only have this radical connection with say a dozen people and maybe a dozen organizations, but I can't feel the same way about all of them. So it's very limited supply. But every organization, private and nonprofit, is trying to get that connection.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so like for me, the awareness of like, okay, this is like, this is a precious commodity that I have, I need to be deliberate on where I put that. And I want to be thoughtful about where I allow my connection to be harvested. You know, versus just succumb to all the ads and all. I mean, the average person receives three hundred and thirty-three emails a day, sees between five and ten thousand ad placements. I mean, we're getting bombarded. It's overwhelming. And nonprofits, if they understand that value of connection, that that precious commodity of what they're trying to achieve, versus just to be like snap, 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 over here, over here, like look at me. You know it's it's a totally big mind shift like what does it take to actually connect with you know you andrew in a personal level i need to know about your farming your hobby farming i need to know about your journey and what the things that you care about and 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 be able to connect with you and that's the way to brian's point in the book has lots of examples of this it's the way nonprofits existed forever you know yeah. until recently really i mean from a macro perspective until recently Nonprofits were extremely, you know, one of one on one, you know, really uh, more intimate, really, you know, walking arm in arm. So there's a there's a, a wake up call to get back to a lot of that, to get back to that and really start reprioritizing what what the effort is really about. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting as you
0: drill into that, because I find so often when I'm having conversations with with other sector leaders, you know, there, there's sort of this narrative around. Small nonprofits and how they're you know kind of missing the mark because they don't have the infrastructure to scale, right? And, but but what we're talking about, they probably have the greatest opportunity to build that Better. radical connection, right? Because uh-huh. they're not beholden to the monster, you know, and the machine and having to keep all that running, and and they can say, yeah, I have six hundred donors, but that means if I make two calls a day, yeah. I could connect with everybody,
1: hundred percent, right?
0: yeah, and, and I, I feel like. You know, so many organizations and fundraisers, and I've probably been guilty of this myself. You know, we 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 think, well, but wait a minute. You know, you can't go from six six hundred donors to sixty thousand donors without massive investment and in this and that. And but really, if you're just sitting down and talking to people, uh, yeah. you can still make transformational impact.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, <laughs> and you've got to balance both, right? It's not practical to think sure. that you're ever going to have enough staff for individual conversations. It's frankly, the the golden era of philanthropy right now is using technology to figure out who you should who is not just a, another donor but a better donor. And you know and it's, it is interesting I just going back on the tactical side because I can't help it, but the from a direct response world, is direct response is like the only area of philanthropy that talks about lifetime value that that talks about really true ROI. And when you look at I mean from a business case, like a, a donor a better donor, you know, that stays with you, has a lifetime value that's worth 15 to 16 times someone that you're just like, hey, pay attention, give me a gift. So it's not about more, it's about better, you know, and, and, and that can be done through technology, and it can be on all areas of the pipeline.
2: Yeah, you know, I think, one Anthony, of the, let's, you would, oh, go ahead, Brian, please, real quickly, what you and what you and uh, Nathan are talking about, if you, um, you know, because of our work with corporations as well, I brands, etc. They do this really, really, really yeah, well, true. meaning they know, I'll just piggyback your example, if they have 600 customers, man, do they know those customers, you know, right. and they, and they know that long-term value, lifetime value that Nathan was yeah. talking about. They know what appeals to them. They know what time of day to, appeal. I mean, they know, just, but they've been, they've been doing this for a long time and they've only been getting more and more refined uh, what they do, which I also think creates that disconnect a little bit between nonprofits because they're training us to think that everybody should know us and everybody should, you know, and nonprofits are never going to have the firepower budgets, but that's okay. But I just want, it's the reality just to understand that's all.
0: Yeah, no, I I think it's a great point because, you know, the, the demand from, from donors is there as well. Like I, I've heard many donors say, why can't I have a one click solution? Like, why do I have to, why do I have to go, you know, spend 20 minutes to figure out how to give you a gift? Like I want to give you money. Why don't you yeah. want it? Right. Yeah. Whereas they could they could go to their Amazon app and you know, my, my wife's in the other room, she hears Amazon. She's probably going to go click off and and there's going to be seven, <laughs> or, you know, 20 minutes from now. Right. So yeah. I mean, that, that's the kind of ease of use that they're expecting. And, and it's interesting, yeah. you know, uh, when you talk about knowing the customer, I, I shared this story with a friend recently. I was, I was in a, uh, in a charity's office one day having a strategy meeting and, uh, and there was a, a, a gift officer came in she was super excited. Cause they just got like a, a $27,000 gift or something like that from a donor who, you know, previously I think their giving had been in the like $1,000 to $2,500 range. Right. So mass massive increase in, in their, their giving. And so she called the, the donors house and asked and, and you know she got she got to hold the wife and she asked if the, the husband was there because he had to sign the check and she was you know effusively just thanking the donor and celebrating um the the impact that their gift would make and the and the donor's wife said well it's tuesday at noon he he's downstairs volunteering don't you know he's there he's right. always there on tuesday at noon
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> right? yeah.
0: And, and and this poor gift officer like she was like the blood just ran out of her face, oh. right? You know, oh, yeah. and she was like, Oh my gosh, how did I not know this incredibly generous, you know, donor who not only just gave us, you know, right. a 10X gift, biggest gift they've ever given, but they also he also gives six hours a week and he's he's you know literally 10 steps away from me. Um yeah. and, and so it's that kind of like knowing that's really yeah. important for us yeah, as we pretty- move forward in this. But I, I want to just take a second to challenge you guys on the AI piece. Um, because I think so often in our sector we chase shiny objects before we actually understand what they can and yeah. can't do. So talk to me a little bit about why leaning into AI isn't just that, and how organizations yeah. and leaders should actually think about it.
2: Yeah, a-
1: AI. <laughs> do you want me to? you want to go for round. Right? <laughs> Um, AI is a confusing topic because it's you know the term itself is not even you know it's a real term but it's it's used so broadly. Sure. You know we joke there's like thirty one thousand flavors of AI and and to your point like all these vendors are out there like oh we use AI and we use AI and and it actually can be true that they do but they're not using it in a way that it's intended. And so what I mean by that is you can use AI to create a completely static algorithm that never adapts or grows or learns. So this idea of machine learning, which is a subset of AI, the operative word is learning. You know, the, it's a really, really big shift. I've been doing this since 2017. And for me, it was a big shift. It took us a year and a half to build our first algorithm back in 2017 in a hospital. And, and, um and I didn't realize for about a year that I would never have to buy another algorithm because what would happen because for my whole career 20 years it's like well we do this the algorithm works and then we have to buy another algorithm or you know recreate it and and it took me a year to figure out like the fundamental shift is that this is like compounding interest like Mm -hmm. it's you invest in this algorithm it's a code base that learns if it's done correctly if you're using machine learning in its true sense then it's learning and getting better and better and better and better and just as an, uh, an experiment, so I, you know, cause we talk about this stuff all day long uh, on Amazon, I turned off all predictions and recommendations like six months ago as an experiment. So Amazon's been training on their algorithms have been training on me since like, you know, whatever, 2001 or whatever, when, wh- however long it's been, it's been a long time. That algorithm has been retrained about me thousands of times. And I turn off recommendations. And the, I kid you not, the very first thing that it made a recommendation at nauseam was fingernail clippers, because <laughs> it didn't know me at all. But it knew that every human needs fingernail clippers. Like it is out uh, astounding at how yeah, dumb please. their algorithm got in in it in instantly. And so. It's to your point is like people don't even know how, you know, the largest, all the largest companies in the world are AI companies. They're like data AI companies using this to create a sense that they know you. I mean, Brian's a, a thousand percent right. The corporations know you very well and they're going to tap on your shoulder when they want to and when they know it's the right time because you have all the data points are showing those conditions and um, and they're very good at it. And so the nonprofit sector has been so resistant to this because we're so used to You know, the old way, which is which is again that backwards area of let's find wealthy people, let's spend more time on them, let's convince them to give to us or convert them to become donors. And then we're gonna form a connection. It's completely backwards. And so, you know, true AI, and, and this is it's a big shift in the nonprofit sector. Leaders have to completely throw everything they think they know about that that part of connection out and really focus on you know really getting to understand the data science and then uh learn to invest in it and to know you'll never be ready and you'll never be done. AI is never done. That's a, it's a big shift. You know so, that
0: that idea of iterative change rather, right rather than you know change yeah. at, at change as something to be done once and and then moved on from that that idea I think is going to be really difficult for this sector to absorb because it's just not in our DNA.
1: It's so hard. It's, it was hard for me. I mean, I went through this a year, a year, year and a half of building this first model. It took me a year to, for literally, I remember this day, this light bulb goes on. I'm like, I'll never have to buy another model again. Mm-hmm. Like how weird, because for 20 years, it's always been like yeah. almost proving why a model doesn't work. You know, that's kind of the process, right? And it's yeah. just like, you you become so pessimistic about, you know, the the whole aspect of it uh, versus, you know, looking around the world and, you know, of, of really, I mean, the biggest companies in the world have all replaced kind of the hard, you know, the oil companies and, and all those, you know, kind of hard uh, product companies, because I mean, they're leveraging massive data and, yeah. and they're really good at it.
0: Well, and, and they're the companies that know the consumer better than the consumer might know themselves at this point. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things you you mentioned the idea of like, you know the the old school of th- thought of find the wealthy people, invest in them, that kind of thing. I was I was sharing with uh, my friend Julie Ardonias, who's a, a you know major gift yeah. coach. Uh yeah. we, were, we were talking a couple of days ago, and, and I was sharing with her the story that uh, Brian, this is a, a I'm not going to name them, but it's a former client that you and I shared, um, who who said to us once, "Don't send a thank you letter to anybody who's given less than twenty five dollars because the return on investment." that is so low (laughs) and and you know just sitting there scratching my head thinking do you know how many high net worth donors test you out by giving you a 25 five dollar gift right yeah and and how much potential opportunity you're leaving on the table or just like completely wiping off the table because you're chasing tomorrow's money instead you know, yeah. they, I mean, that that kind of thing happens so often. And I love the perspective of, of flipping that on its head, because I think without that, you know, you you just run the risk of of, you know, cutting your legs out from under you.
2: Yeah. Andrew, I, I'll give you a great example. I was um, my wife where she went to university. They I always thought they did something really, really great. And it's exactly to your point. When Whenever they profiled in their magazine that comes a major donor, you know, five million, ten million, some really significant giving. I always found this fascinating, they, and they're not the only ones to do this, but they had a profile of them, and there was kind of like a did-you-know section always, and it was about their career path, kids, you know, but they always put first gift, the size of it, and when it was, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, I can't tell you how many times it was literally $25 yeah. to your, now yeah. that was not, maybe not testing them, that was basically sure. what they could afford as it, and I remember being blown away and seeing like 1981, $25, yeah. and then yeah. you're like in the present moment. 10 million and I'm like, God, I wish more of our clients could understand what you just said too, yeah, you know? Yeah.
0: So true. Um, okay, so we're we're just about out of time. I, I have a couple quick more quick questions though. So, so Brian, help us understand like, you know, that idea of radical connection and and the the machine learning. Bring that all together for for the development officer for us. And like if they want to start tomorrow behaving differently to yep. help stave off this generosity crisis in their own shop. Like what are the two or three things that you would say do these now to set yourself up for success?
2: Oh wow um, on a very very practical level, the first thing that comes to my mind and, and Nathan can just pile on and you know this is basic but don't the, the taking for granted what you think you know about the, the your, your the supporters is the first thing that jumps out to me on Andrew on a practical level I have had too much experience with some of our clients basic you know, surveying of donors of just even supporters historical if it's a school current parent just asking what you know what they like what they know about the organization what they like i mean the amount of information that people will provide you back that can help them gear a strategy about how to better engage them to better know them the very act of asking for their opinion mm-hmm. is part of that building that relationship the whole thing flipping it up on its head that and again as basic as that is, as that sounds um I, I think so much good can come from it. You know, one of our clients a couple of years ago, we did the first ever survey. They hadn't done one in 90 years. Well, they've never done one. They were 90 years old. <clears throat> they took for granted, and I don't mean that in a bad way, of what they thought why people supported them. And guess what? The survey didn't, wasn't any aha that like blew everybody away, but what it did do is it tweaked some things. It tweaked some of the strategy, some of the communication, some mm-hmm. of the ways in which we defined and described what people felt about this particular school and that would end it kind of really catapulted the whole flipping up on its head. And I'll give you an outgrowth as one small data point of this. That was about two years ago, give or take, that we did the survey work. And it charted us with the client on totally different like thought pattern of, hmm, this is interesting. If this, why not this, and if that. And two things happened. COVID happened and the head of the school delivered a video message. Oh, by the way, because we learned that people said, you know, I I, I like hearing from him. So if you could, and we actually wrote a script that had him emphasize different aspects of the story in Mm. a slightly different way. And Nathan, I don't know if you, and in 10 days, $2.7 million was raised. Wow. Wow. Okay. Literally off of a video. There was no (laughs) things weird. Okay. And then fast forward, the same organization is, we're in a campaign with them now. It's rapidly approaching $30 million that they've raised. Their last campaign was $25 million. The last campaign was $25 million from 3,300 donors. They're almost at 30? 25.
0: 25 donors?
2: 25 donors. Huh. Because we, we did everything that, Nathan, you've been talking about. We I, we challenged them to kind of flip the script a bit, right? Huh. Go build, like go talk about what this campaign was and why it was like why it was so important to that donor. And we really had those concentric circles overlapping with none other. Guess what? I, I know it sounds crazy and potentially dramatic, but... A lot of what we learned, we learned from the survey. That completely mm. changed a different path going forward. So, and then I'll just plug the last kind of practical thing: what you learn from that type of a survey. But you know, I get asked this a lot. The question of would you give to this organization? Yes, it's on there, that survey. But it's like question number twenty-two. Everything else is about them. Is about the person that we're, we wanted to mm-hmm. And that information, as I said, can not only feed strategies, but you give that type of information to Nathan, and we've talked about this, like some of the survey work connecting to some of the model building that he was referring to, you've got something that I'm sure I can segue now. But I, when I talk to a lot of clients, they're like, really? Like all that you're talking about, radical connection, always big, can start with a certain. I'm like, I honestly believe it can.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, number one, buy our book because um, and selfishly because it actually we provide us a, a framework in the book for uh, what really understand what radical connection is. And it really, um, in a way, and, and we haven't done this, but it absolutely could be turned into a survey like it essentially is a way of like, where are you on the spectrum of just like knowing about us or loving us and telling your everyone that in your network about us you know? And so, um, that framework, I think in our book is super, super helpful for anyone that's like boots on the ground, trying to figure it out because it demystifies all this other stuff. I mean, you know, don't start with AI, start with getting to know your, your people individually and find out where they're at in that spectrum of either knowing you or loving you.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. All right, guys. So, um, we are, we are out of time. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I could. Talk to you guys for another like 10 hours and, and <laughs> I say we not no? <laughs> <laughs> That's for the master class later. Um, how do people get the book?
1: The book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all where I forget what the what the phrase is, where all good books are sold. Um, it it comes out November 15th, it's on pre-order, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's gonna be great. Uh, Barnes and Noble actually in New York, if they're in New York, um, is dedicating their store window to the book for two nice. weeks, November 15th, which okay. is just phenomenal. Awesome. Yeah. i um, really excited about that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and perfect. And how
0: do people get in touch with the two of you?
1: Uh, for me, LinkedIn, I, I am really proud of my LinkedIn community. I've been, you know, I bet on the right horse when it first came out and I just love it. And I love connecting with people there. And so, uh, anyone finds Nathan Chappelle, uh, on LinkedIn, send me a DM, let's connect, we'll have virtual coffee, whatever, talk about how we solve the world's problems. Awesome.
2: And Brian, you yeah, ditto for me, just I would say LinkedIn, just keep it consistent, keep it easy. Um, And I I agree with Nathan, anyone who's got any thought or any, you know, good, bad, or indifferent about what we're talking about, you know, reach out, would love to continue the conversation. That's the whole point, you know, one of the main points why we wrote the book. And Andrew, thank you. Thank you for this platform. And thank you for the opportunity yeah. to have this conversation today.
0: Yeah, man, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I'm, I'm excited for the book. Um, it's a fantastic read. So I encourage everybody to go out and grab a copy. And uh, I'd love to have you guys back for a, a second session at some point too. Thanks again for joining us today for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review so we can get our message out to more nonprofit leaders. And as always, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or at Andrew at andrewolson.net. Be well, friends. Have you read my Amazon number one best selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.